You know, people watching at home might say, what can I do? My platform is too small. The problems are too big. Through Waterboys, we have provided 211,000 people with the gift of clean water. We have a long way to go to get to our million people served goal. As we sit here tonight, there are over 844 million people without access to clean water. So anyone's efforts can be made to look like a drop in the bucket. You may doubt the significance of your work, but work faithfully anyway. Work faithfully for the people in your community and for those who you may never meet, at home or in places you may never go. And work faithfully to solve problems that may not be resolved in our lifetimes. That's service. Service doesn't require a great platform or require you to be the sole author of a solution. It is a humble task, and the only requirement is a love of people. Someone said to me, all the guys nominated tonight, all your hard work is finally paying off. I would say to them, you're wrong. Our work is already paying off. It will continue to pay off as the men in this league, both celebrated and unrecognized, continue to serve. Welcome to Glorious Professionals, brought to you by GORUCK Media. I'm Jason here with Emily, and today our guest is Chris Long. And what I just read was part of his acceptance speech for the 2019 Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, considered by many to be one of the top honors in the NFL. We're pretty much all about service in its many forms here at Glorious Professionals, and so it's an honor to welcome Chris to the show. He was an All-American defensive end for the University of Virginia before being drafted as the second overall pick to the Rams in 2008. He had an 11-year career in the NFL, winning two Super Bowl rings with the Patriots and the Eagles before retiring in 2019. He grew up in a football family. His dad is Hall of Famer Howie Long, one of my all-time faves, but he credits his mom, Diane, for his dedication to others. He donated most of his NFL salary to charitable causes in 2017, and to date, his signature foundation initiative, Waterboys, has raised $1.3 million to build 24 solar-powered wells in Tanzania, with a goal to build 32 one for each team in the NFL. Chris, welcome. Yeah, man. Thank you all for having me so much. I like the set. The shirts are sweet. I was just already like uh, <laughs> back channel trying to secure some swag. Uh, <laughs> Want to kind of start with how you, how you grew up, early mentors in your life. Yeah, like early, man. Um, sports gave me an outlet and it wasn't just because, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever phrased it this way, but I wasn't great at school. I mean, like I was the classic kid that was probably pretty smart, but it just wasn't working. The constraints of learning, you know, in elementary school or high school, like uh, I struggled academically. So sports, like as much as I naturally gravitated to, to it because I was talented, sports gave me an outlet to like do something and be successful at it and a place where for the most part, what you put in, you got out which is not always true in sports, but um, at the youth level, I feel like there's more of a, an opportunity for that. So I found like a niche, uh, as so many kids do, and I found mentors in that niche. And I found, you know, like I didn't have to look far because I had my dad who played 13 years in the league and, you know, built his thing from the ground up and nobody outworked him. And he taught me the the foundational knowledge of what it what it takes. And then in the spirit of not being overbearing, you know, introduced me to people, whether it was Little League Baseball, whether it was Chris Miller, my Little League coach, who I think about a lot, even still, which sounds corny, but it's true. Um, Sam Beal, who just passed away, he used to throw, you know, batting practice to, to, to us in the cold until his arm just went. And 
you know, just the repetition of hard work to like a Ben D'Alessandro, who was an AU basketball coach. My dad hooked me up with the, when I was 13 to run sprints until I cried, which sounds really backwards now. Not a go ruck. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, they're, 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 yeah, it depends on who you're talking to, but you know, like all those experiences and all those little, those mentors that popped into my life, like it started because I found a niche and something that made me feel good. And I think that like, if you're dealing with like kids, sometimes we want them to do what we want them to do, but is there something fulfilling for that kid that makes them feel good and shows them the, the positive reinforcement of hard work? And, you know, I think some things we push kids into, they don't get that positive reinforcement of like, okay, your hard work matters. And I think reinforcing that's important. And that's what happened to me. So like from an early age, I knew how to do one thing and that was work. And that was big because I grew up in a household where, you know, my dad provided um, a great life for us, the life that he didn't have. So I could have become pretty stuck up or I could have become pretty uh, aloof or not, you know, not thinking about the blessings I have. But my dad made sure I didn't. So how was mom? Cause you got three brothers, you got, yeah. you know, your, your dad, it's, it's a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of male dominated sports life in your, your upbringing. And, and what was, I, I'm sure she's some kind of glue somewhere. Yeah, how how glue, did that go? She's the glue. My mom, Diane, she's, um, the way I put it is, you know, you asked about role models and I think a lot of people, you know, framing and okay. I know this guy from playing the NFL if I know him at all, but like, you know, a lot of my athletic role models were the ones I just talked to you about. But like my life role models, my mom, you know, like the person that I take after a little bit. And my dad has a tremendous giving spirit and all that stuff. And he's done so much. But my mom's like a go-getter, like an organizer. My mom's like a bring people together to to do something, to accomplish a goal. You know, my mom never wakes up and is like, I got nothing to do today. You know, and I think that's the gift and a curse that I got because I never wake up with nothing to do, but that means you're never not busy. <laughs> and that's okay. That's how I want to live my life, man. Like I'd rather be pulling my hair out because I literally am doing 60 hour weeks of whatever uh, with a family, a foundation, a podcast, which we're creating a lot of content or whether it was being a teammate. The exciting part about being a pro athlete is the, the relationships that you you forge. And I think like, well, I got my work ethic from my dad. I do think like the things that allowed me to be a captain in the NFL in college and to be somebody who hopefully your teammates remember as somebody they love suiting up with. That was my mom, you know, like my mom's just like a people person. So how did she pass those lessons? How'd she pass those on to you? Example. I think example, I think nurturing a household where, you know, like you say, I love you, you know, you, you, uh, you express your feelings, which sounds basic, but I really think that, in my household, I had a really good understanding of like expressing your feelings and communication and, and working out problems one-on-one. And and, th- and that's kind of counterintuitive because you think about my dad, everybody thinks about like, you know, NFL player, like probably presumably a meathead, far from it, probably can't talk about his feelings, you know, like, but my mom was such a positive force in my dad's life coming from where he came from. And he'd probably tell you she saved his life in a lot of ways. And so you know, having that kind of like Gandhi force in the house, you know, that Dalai Lama kind of force to balance out all the stresses of playing pro football, which can turn you into a ugly person. You know what I mean? Like that yin and yang. Ugly how? Ugly because you're because you're you have to be angry on a level to do what we do. Everything when you play pro football is a conflict competitively. You know, everything's a threat at work every day. You're your kind of manhood, whether you like that or not, is on the line. Like, 
you you play a bad baseball game, you're not good at hitting a ball with a stick. If you're bad at football, everybody thinks you're soft or, you know, you're not cut out for it or it's some reflection of your intention as an athlete, as a competitor. And I think guys wear that. And I think the pressure can get to guys. And I think, you know, when I retired, there was an adjustment period where I was like, everything's not a conflict anymore. And you have to just relax and live your life. And so having that force, and I have it with my wife, Meg, who's a huge role model of mine now, you know, you start from the beginning, but having those forces that are like yins to the yang, you know, of going to work in this chaotic environment where it's hyper pressured, that's a huge thing. It's, it's identical in the military. You're on these small teams and, you know, your life, their life depends upon, you know, the, the tip of the spear always sharpening and it's, your, your manhood is very much on the line every day. And way more with you guys, I can imagine. It's just like, well, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there is this kind of wholesome, I mean, money enters into it zero, right? Yeah. So it's just sort of duty, honor, country. And, and there's, yeah. there's that inherent nature to it, which, which is probably a little bit different, but I, I can completely understand that. Right. I mean, I, I have a switch, right? It's like, if I go work out, I want to blast Metallica until my ears. Bleed, <laughs> right. And, and that's just kind of, I, I have that inside of me and it's got to come out some way, but there is that, you know, in this pretty thing next to me is very much the yin to my yang in terms of Right, like she doesn't want to listen to Metallica, basically. <laughs> I ever. like it. I like it. Give me a break, right? <laughs> like, you know, like it's a change of pace. I, you know, and the problem is, my wife uh, Meg, she's a little bit of a maniac because the problem is she's like shorter. She's well, she she said she has a little man's complex, and she played college sports, and she's like a college lacrosse player. So both Aries, if you believe in the sign thing, <laughs> it's just like butt heads, and so that helped having a you know, having a life partner that understands the grind of, and I'm sure you understand the grind. I mean, it's just like, it's that symbiotic relationship of like, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling. And on top of that, it was like, you know, having um, a significant other who played college sports really helped me in athletics because, you know, that's the person that when you're trying to explain to them, like, listen, I got to train, like, or I can't go out and do this right now. Or like, I don't want to go to that wedding. It's like the, the the weekend before training camp. I'm not flying across the country. I have priorities. Like some other people might try to drag you to this thing or that thing or not understand when you come home tired a little bit. And I've tried to always be good about not taking it home, which is, I think is a big key thing. But my wife, Meg, really like helps me with that too. So, you know, role models all over the map and I still have them. Like, you know, I'm still acquiring them. I think if you're humble enough to realize you don't have the answers, you know, you're working on it. Like you're always going to be looking for role models. So how did you two meet? Was it in college? Yeah, in college. Um, my first uh, year at Virginia, we were in a class called, uh, well, I don't remember what the class was called, but it was a big, it was a big class. <laughs> <laughs> we were sitting pretty far apart. Well, the first time I met her was in the training room the first day in the summer. Like she was weighing in and we were working out like the football team was in there and the cross team was like, so I came up and struck up a conversation, you know, very smooth. And uh, it still took me two years to actually become her boyfriend. So uh, once I did, we actually broke up for a year and then kind of senior year got back together. And I'm just really glad we did because, golly, 11, 12, 13 years later, here we are, two kids living uh, a life that for us is pretty perfect. Okay. So to rewind, to catch up a little bit, I mean, you know, you, you grow up and you, you chose sports right? You're good at it. You naturally gravitate towards what you're good at. You probably love the camaraderie and the team stuff. But I did and suck in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> at what? At football? 
or baseball? And pretty much everything. Like I, I'm trying to think if there was anything I was actually good at immediately. That was the thing. Like my dad used to say, and like if you were, if my dad was sitting right here, he would laugh at me as a young athlete, and that's okay because like it's all it's, it turned out okay. <laughs> but like football, first night, my parents were like, "He wants to play football." I'm nine years old. They were like, well, we don't want to play football because we know how tough it is, like on your body. My dad did 13, so he knows like what it's like, and he never felt the same. And so they were like talking in the bedroom, and they said, um, we don't want him to play. So how do we how do we make this happen? So he doesn't play well. If we tell him he's not gonna he's not gonna listen. He's gonna try to do the opposite, you know, because um, I've had that thing with me since birth. So. <laughs> They were like, well, he's he's definitely soft. So if, if we let him go out there and play football tomorrow, he's going to get his, his nose bloody and come home, and he's never going to want to play again. <laughs> well, I went out and got my nose bloody, but I want to keep playing. And I sucked probably all the way till maybe high school. You know, like I, I was a I was a big kid, right? I wasn't like – it took me a while to grow into my body, but still ninth grade, I'm on the, um, the varsity team, and I remember watching the entire state championship, which meant like – you know, I was good. I was on varsity, but I wasn't like that good. And, you know, baseball, same way. Took me a lot of work. So yeah, it's just, I sucked in the beginning, man. So what was the hardest part then? Because in, in my point in, in asking this is you're going to end up facing a lot of adversity throughout your career. Yeah. And you don't get good at facing adversity by going through none when you're younger. I, th I think probably not being very good in the beginning. You know, a lot of kids go through that where they have to grind through it. And I certainly had certain talent, but like when you're young, if you're tall and that's all you got, that's not really like a talent in anything but basketball. So, you know, for me, it was just like taking batting practice, you know, more than the next kid or working out extra in high school and, and just kind of that extra grind. But probably the biggest, and a lot of people are like, oh, this is amazing. But probably the biggest adversity for me was just having a target on my back. I mean, you know, with with who my dad is in a small town where I grew up. And once we moved from California, when he retired, you know, dropping into a new city. And from the beginning, I think, you know, no matter what I was doing as an athlete, it was always because of my dad, you know, like, Hey, listen, I signed a scholarship to play at the university of Virginia. I got an offer to play at the university of Virginia. It's because of my dad. I'm Gatorade state player of the year. It's because of my dad, you know, in college, you're getting pro looks because of your dad. In the pros, you get your second contract, which means that, like, you balled out and they're going to pay you. You know, it never matters to those people. And another thing is, on top of that, you know, in high school, you go somewhere and people be chanting stuff about your dad. You're like, what is this, dude? Like, it bothered me, but it just pissed me off. Like, it never, like, made me shrink up. Was it fuel? Yeah, absolutely. It was still fuel. It was still fuel. It was just... Whether you thought about before you took the field, even as a 33-year-old man, you know, my last couple of years in Philly where I've proven most of what I need to prove in my life, you still have something to prove inherently because that chip is like embedded. And listen, some people might be like, well, that sounds pretty good to have that chip. I'm like, okay, I don't need to convince you that there can be a lot of pressure. If I put it this way, and you know, like I played 11 years in the league, 70 sacks, two Super Bowls, been a captain, been most places you want to go. Most people have that life. They're like, oh, this is amazing. I walk into my own house. It's pretty regular, if not minor, to do that in my household. My dad has a gold jacket. So, you know, that's something that's always kept me grounded. It's always also helped me to be able to deal with some of the pressures and, like, makes you more thick-skinned because I've always heard it. I've always heard it. And even after, like, in the league, 
you shed that like insecurity if you had any because you're like oh i made it you still wear it you still wear it like uh it makes you thick skin and you know like any other issue that comes up you're like normal pressures that guys are like oh, i'm under pressure like i've been under that pressure my whole life whatever i do was not good enough for the person i meet on the street so you get real good at not only compartmentalizing other people's opinions but turning it into fuel so it sounds to me that you had a lot of this external pressure on you based upon you know who your father was and but it sounds like inside the home your father and your mother were both very supportive, right? Like did, did they put pressure on you too? Or would they just seeing that it was kind of, you were born into it? No, I mean, like, I think they, they put pressure on me to, to be a good person. I mean, um, they put pressure on me. Like my dad put way more pressure on me to talk to my mom respectfully than he put pressure on me to play football. Good. That speaks well of him. That's, that's honestly, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of your dad's, right? But yeah. that, that's the best thing I've ever heard about your dad. Well, he's, he's a good man, dude. And like, listen, I just say this, like, you say what you want about my dad, you know, I mean, uh, he would tell you he's, he's been a work in progress for 60 years, just like, you know, anybody else. And he's, he's calmed down a lot since he played football and he is a good man, dude. And he treats his family with the utmost and cares a great deal about his family. And that's pretty much what he cares about his family. And so, yeah, like reinforcing those values, that was the pressure. The pressure in sports was whatever you decide to do, you do it a hundred percent. You do it balls to the wall. And that was not lip service. That was like, you can do whatever you want to do, but I'm warning you. Like if I see you doing a half ass, it's going to be an issue. And so that was it. So you had a, a long and, and great career. All American college, you know, big time draft pick, all that type of stuff. Went to a bad team, right? Yeah, it was bad. But, but, but I guess my my question is, what was what was rock bottom like for you while you were playing? I mean, anybody will tell you with the pressure of the NFL. I think if you play long enough, you have a few rock bottoms. I mean, like you could. There's more rock bottoms and mountains. I'll put it that way. Like the way my pops described football to me, pro football was. It's a million shitty moments for those one those couple seconds of like I did it, which gives me chills thinking about it, honestly because that's why you play. Like anybody who acts like football is always awesome, or even if you love football. And I'm not even sure I love the game of football. I love competing. I love accomplishing things. I love like pushing myself to be to be uncomfortable and, and football makes you perpetually uncomfortable. So you don't have to love football, but even the guys that love football, I mean, they'll tell you those rock bottom moments are way more plentiful than the good ones. And so I think for me, it was like coming to the league. And obviously you mentioned a high draft pick. My first two years, I have combined like 10 sacks. That's like a problem. And nobody cares that your team sucks. You have no leads. The team's just run the ball down your throat. And nobody's there to teach. You know, like the older players there to teach you. But when you're on a bad team, it's just dysfunction. So, you know, things clicked my third year. And so, like, right before that, if you Googled my name, like, the autocorrect was B for bust. <laughs> so, so, like, listen, you know, as a 24-year-old kid, you're like, oh, you, you've worked your whole life for this thing and you're going to be remembered with this really dirty word. And the way I look at it was, was I overdrafted? Yeah, but I was a first round pick. You would, what, are you going to pick me 10th? You're going to pick me 15th? Uh, I'm going to cry about that. Like I should have been picked 10th. Like, I don't care. But at the time it was such a label. So that off season going into my third year, 
I really worked uh, to try to change my pass rush. You know, I try to take things into my own hands, technically change some things. And the next four, I had 40 and the rest is history. Then I got paid on my second deal and um, that sort of thing. But so what I'm getting at though, is what did it feel like at 24 years old, which by the way, is, is a, it's a difficult time. You're, you're supposed to be a man, you know, you're yeah. supposed to have everything figured out. And, and yeah. like, you got these sports writers that are, however old they are, they've been around the block and you know, there, there's always the critics, they're always out there and they can sharpshoot everything. And you're 24 years old. And what does it feel like inside your head in your life when you've got this pressure cooker of like, you're a bust and you're not sacking enough people. Yeah. You're not sacking enough people. Like I always remember I was, I met a, um, a dude outside Edward Jones. Zone Cause I used to hang out and sign autographs after, even after like, it's like, you don't want to sign autographs after Rams games, but cause you're just like, you just got your ass kicked or whatever. And at this time, everything I'm describing to you, but I, I love people and I want to sign autographs. So there's a, a dude who's homeless and he walks up, and he, he, he's asking for a dollar and we, we give him some money and he asks if we play for the team, all that's so cool. What's your name? What's your name? And he gets to me and he's like, oh yeah, you're Chris Long. And I'm like, oh, and he's like, how many sacks you got this year? And I'm like four. And he goes, get the fuck out of here, man. <laughs> and he like, just shakes his head and walks away. And I'm like, oh, the homeless guy just called me. <laughs> so, so that, like, that wasn't necessarily rock bottom. I was like kind of impressed that he knew who I was, uh, not so much in a great way. Um, I think it just feels, what it feels like is, it's like the Trojan horse, man, of opportunities. It seems like to a lot of people that N the NFL is a dream and it's and it would make all your problems go away. Why do so many guys struggle? You know, like, why do so many guys struggle afterwards and that sort of thing? I mean, as a sidebar, but I, I think, like, you get there and, and you realize that, number one, that hard work that's always guaranteed you some semblance of success is not a guarantee anymore. Everybody's more athletic than you now. Like everybody is you and then some. So it was humbling, even though I was already humble. It was scary because you're like, what if I drop dead today? I'm a bust. Like, what if I drop dead today? Nobody rem no nobody's like, oh, that guy was really cool. That guy was generous. That guy's a good brother. That guy's a good family member. Oh, he's fun to drink beer with. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that football player that sucked. Or didn't even, and here's the unfair thing. I was still pretty good as a young player. I just wasn't the second pick, you know, like if the first two years, like I wasn't playing like the second pick. And so to a degree, you want to kick yourself in the ass because you're like, that's the way your mind works and you're not going to give yourself any slack. But when you're looking back on it, you're like, man, what a fucked up situation. Excuse my French twice now. Okay. You're fine. What, what a messed up situation that you can work your, so hard your entire life and end up in this situation that's only like you can embarrass yourself perpetually. And so that's the that's the flip side of sports. I think I think, you know, like we're paid so much and we're so lucky, dude. I walked into a situation where I didn't deserve that money at that age. None of us do, really. But that's supply and demand. People demand football and 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 we're the supply. So I think it's just it's eye opening, man. It's 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 an eye opening experience to see that people it's like bill buckner who passed away recently i mean taking it to an extreme first thing you think of when you think of bill buckner will always be that ground ball yep bill buckner was an amazing baseball player but people always remember him for that and he was probably a million other things and that's the thing about sports is even at the greatest players in the world can have the one bad moment and that never leaves you so i think that's the flip side too yeah you make a lot of money 
you can provide for, for your family, but also any game. Like when I started playing the Super Bowl, you're like, what if I jumps offside to ruin the game? You can't think about that, but like that could be you and you'll never live that down. No matter how cool you are, Scott Norwood, Buffalo Bills. Like, do you think he deserves to live in the torment, the anguish that he probably lives in? And I, I say that, I don't say that lightly. He shouldn't live that way, but it's, you're only human. You know, I think that's the pressure and the power of sports. That was the first rock bottom. The second was getting hurt uh, eight years in my career and figuring it was over. I mean, I got hurt two years in a row. All of these things, they seem to just fuel you though. You go back to that kind of almost like a chip on your shoulder, like you still got something to prove and your default, is it just to work harder? Yeah, which which eventually is humbling too, because when you work harder and harder, like the the two elevators thing, okay. So like when you're in the league, your your knowledge is down here and your physical is here. And so like as time goes on, your physical goes down and your knowledge goes up. And when you're here, that's your prime, right? So you you figure it out at like 25, 26. You figure it out or you don't figure it out. And uh you know who you are. You know what you're capable of. And I'm grooving. I'm I'm in a roll. I'm on a roll. I'm you know I played in 100 straight games. You know I talked about the span of you know all of a sudden getting to the quarterback and you know um, getting hurt off that. That's that's the hard part where you realize that this is very fleeting. Like that's the hardest part. So you can't work yourself out of certain things. The day you realize that like not only have I spent my whole life realizing that you have to work your ass off, but then at a point your hard work's not going to be enough. And just the, the, the harsh reality of sink or swim, you're getting old. This is a young man's game. Like your opportunities are going to dwindle. You realize that like those two years I've worked so hard to get myself off the mat, you know, like, uh, got IR in St. Louis in 14, 15, got IR again, came back, broke my leg. And these are bad luck things. All of a sudden, you're injury prone. All of a sudden, like you're overpaid. I'm like, no shit. I'm sitting on the sideline. What do you What do you want me to do? <laughs> you can work as hard as you want to build yourself back up. But I think one of the most humbling things for me was I went on this rampage to get myself back to where I was and reprove that I could still play and go win a ring and that sort of thing. But you realize how your ceiling has changed in just two years for the way people are going to perceive you, give you opportunities. And also physically, you can't do things you used to do anymore. And I think the minute you realize that your hard work doesn't guarantee you anything uh, in your career, you know, um, welcome to professional sports. Because that's, when I was in my prime, that was easy. I just eat glass and go out and, you know, run a million sprints and set my jaw to go play like a maniac for 60 minutes and do everything I was asked of because my body could take it. And I'm used to that. The hard part is when all of a sudden you realize your hard work doesn't get you in the door the way it used to. And I think that was the biggest lesson for me, getting more knowledge of like, you know, the journey at 30, 31, 32, 33, and eventually just saying, you know what, I'm good. It's like that old picture in Major League, you know? And Charlie Sheen is like, he puts not on the ball, right? They're all great, except the, back to the minors. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I want to transition a little bit. So when did you, we'll talk about Kilimanjaro and Tanzania and Waterboys and your foundation. And when did you know that you wanted to officially, formally lead a life of service that would involve giving back to others like I still think I, I got a lot of work to do there. I, I think what we have going for us in the NFL is everything we do is publicized, positive or negative. Now, whether the news wants to pick up the negativity more than the positivity, we can't help that. But and there are some some dudes who make the news in bad ways, and I don't think that speaks for 
the entire league, but um, there's a lot of good men in the league. And so like when you get into a locker room, you realize that there's this great opportunity to do good. And you start to realize that at some point you could formalize what you've always been doing, which is just being thoughtful. I mean, like you should always be thoughtful and mindful of other people. And that's a lifelong process where you still, I'm trying to be not selfish. Like I'm 36 years old, just turned 36 and I'm selfish. I'm still selfish. You know, you're constantly fighting that impulse to be selfish. And what you realize is that like when you get in the NFL, you have this great vehicle uh, to do a lot of good. And um, I see my teammates um, and, and the causes they're attached to. But I still didn't get it early because I didn't want to be um, like rah-rah guy. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I, you see people do, doing good and, you know, cynicism sometimes can be like, is this pro athlete doing it for the right reasons? Is this just like a, a photo op? You know, like what's what's the investment? I never wanted to be that guy. So we did a lot of things under the, the radar, me and my, my wife and some of my teammates, you know, people know now. But like I, I, we did a lot of stuff in St. Louis for for a couple of years, but I never had a foundation. And at one point I realized that I was being a dumbass and I was doing and like it was me being like vain or something saying, oh, I'll pat myself on the back. I do things quietly. I do things for the right reasons when nobody's looking. When, at a point that becomes like a self, like that becomes a thing where you're just, you you like the idea of it. And I'm saying to myself, okay, if I'm raising $10 and I get the fans involved and I can raise $50, why are you doing this? So we started a foundation and I wanted to start a foundation around my fifth, sixth year in the league. You know, I lean on my mom for advice because she's worked a lot with the Boys and Girls Club. Like, you know, you talk about my mom being a role model and like her giving spirit. Like she's always supported my dad in executing the things that like he are important to him. And she's always worked like like Casa here in Charlottesville. She kind of showed me what it was going to take, like the commitment. And then around the same time, I went to Tanzania and we climbed Kili. And I said, you know what? Like this isn't this experience is kind of just. It's almost like it dropped into my lap because, man, I've always wanted to change the world in a really um, efficient, utilitarian way and get results. And like, that's what I'm into is results. Um, and clean water gave me that awesome opportunity. So I was screwing around doing good. I mean, you know, trying to be a good person, but not trying to be intentional for, for years. It's almost like you wanted to be on the hook. Yeah. What do you mean? Like in, instead of doing something, sure, if, if, you know, your buddy has something and they're going to invite you to some dinner somewhere and you're going to sit at some table and it's going to raise a little bit of money, you can feel good about that. That's good. Yeah. Right. But you're not actually on the hook. But yeah. when you start a foundation and it's got your name and then you, you have these, these public goals, you know, 32, yeah. 32 wells and you reach them and then you say, hey, I want to do more. You're, you're, you're constantly kind of on the hook. You have a goal. Yeah, people hold you to it, you know, like, and if it was, hey, we're going to donate something quietly, uh, you know, that that's cool. But again, to your point, you haven't like stepped out and said that, like, this is what I do. You know, you do one off things. Nobody's expecting the second. And, you know, there's something to that. And there's also the minute you say I'm launching a foundation or an initiative like Waterboys, you know, I'm big on following through, even though (laughs) my life is full of half finished projects. Like, ideally, I'm big on following through. The one thing I'm not going to have finished is going to be, like, a commitment to service. So tell us specific, like, what, what Waterboys does. Yeah. 
So, you know, I said earlier we went to Tanzania. It was me and James Hall. He was like an older player on, on my team. It was, it was like a big brother to me. And uh, I got him to take a trip to Tanzania on a whim. He was like 10 years older, grumpy as hell, didn't want to go anywhere. But he was like, okay, I'll go with you. We'll climb this mountain. So we'll climb Kilimanjaro because my head coach, Jeff Fisher, had done it. So he walked in. Jeff Fisher, the first time Jeff Fisher ever, I met Jeff Fisher for the first time in his office. You know, not trying to impress my coach at all, but he had this picture of Kelly and I'm like, yo, dude, did you do Kilimanjaro? And he's like, yeah, I did. I was like, man, it's so cool. I like to climb. Like, tell me about the experience. And he told me about it. He's like, you should try it someday. I was like, how about this off season? <laughs> and uh, he's like, uh, we just paid you. <laughs> what the hell? So he couldn't really tell me no, but I took James Hall and um, we went to Kelly and um Tanzania, halfway around the world. I had never traveled. I can always remember like feeling a little bit of FOMO for my buddies who like joined the Peace Corps or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You guys get, you got to travel. So see the world, you know, and you're out there serving and there's got to be some in between. I didn't have to join the military to like travel. So, you know, I, I, I heard about people who studied abroad and all this stuff and I just was jealous. So we went on this trip. And we climbed this mountain and it kicked our ass and we made it to the top and it was amazing. And uh, I fell in love with the people, though. I, I just fell in love with kind of the attitude there, man. Like the one thing that stuck out to me in general about people in Tanzania that I met, it was just incredibly resilient and positive. And I don't think you have to be stoic, but I admired the stoicism that a lot of people exhibited in the face of like huge challenges. And, you know, in our country, we have some huge challenges and people are trying to meet them head on. Right. These folks have existential, immediate challenges like wake up in the morning, survive today. You know, like I've got to gather water to provide this basically human necessity, which I think should be a human right. And I've got to, as a woman of the household, walk five hours through the desert, dangerous trek sexual assault, predators, like real predators. This is Tanzania. There's lions, there's, you know, hyenas, there's everything that you would be afraid of on these treks. And um, I'm going to go to this watering hole that might not even be clean just to bring it back and give my kids a shot to drink water that may or may not kill them in a lot of cases because diarrhea kills a lot of kids in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, um, Giardia, all the stuff that you guys would worry about out there um you know you guys have ways to treat that and you know you're talking about young kids bodies anyways but on top of that you just don't have the same resources to make things right and so waterborne illness can kill quick and that was one of the biggest things that i learned in coming back in fact actually it was before i it was before i left me and james hall were in a bar drinking a beer and all it took was like one or two on the way but down from that mountain i've told the story a bunch of times where two IPAs from Tanzania and I was gone. And uh, all of a sudden I hear somebody walk in the bar and say my name. And I'm like, dude, we're in Tanzania. It must be something. So I turn around and it's Joe Buck, who you guys know from baseball, who everybody thinks uh, they Joe hates their baseball team, but he really doesn't. Uh, I love Joe. And he's like, Chris, what the hell? Because he lives in St. Louis. We, we strike up a conversation. What are you doing here? I'm here on a water project that likes you to meet Doug Pitt. And Doug is a goodwill ambassador to Tanzania. And he's actually, the first thing I thought about him was, man, that guy looks a lot like Brad Pitt. Good for him. What's Brad's brother? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and we struck up a conversation and just like talking about, because 
Doug does a lot of water projects and he had done a lot with Brad and, you know, they they fought poachers there and that sort of thing, like really kind of fell in love with the area. And um, they're like, hey, we're going on this water project tomorrow. You should go. It's amazing. Like, you'll change your life. And I'm like, I got a flight. I'm tired. At this point, I don't know anything about it. I'm not going to lie. I wish I had an epiphany where it was like, oh, I got to do this. But it took prodding. Like, I couldn't have gone on this water project because of my flight. But I don't know that I would have because I didn't know anything about it. Okay. But I left the next day and I was thinking about, you know, the seed that they planted with me. And I was thinking about this want to start a foundation. And again, I don't think you need to have some epiphany where there's no water in a faucet. You know, the slow motion B-roll they put at the front of like a a highly produced video. I looked at it as like, I see a ton of challenges here in Tanzania in my nine days here. And I want to help. If you're a good traveler, you want to help what you know, a place that's given you a beautiful experience. And if I, I got a lot of questions, why Tanzania? Well, because I was there. You know what I mean? Like, if you wait your whole life to be like, oh, where on the map should I start making a difference? Like, you'll just never start. So water, Tanzania, Doug Pitt and I were working on something else. Ice bucket challenge. It made me think we had a ton of water to just dump on people, which is awesome. And imagine if we could get clean water to be just as much a priority as this thing, which the ALS ice bucket challenge people just, they took that summer by storm. Kudos to them. Like they just, they found a way through social media to activate this like fevering, you know, interest in solving this problem. So we want to do the same thing with water, start a water boys and Tried to employ the help of my friends because nobody really gave a shit, you know, like what the St. Louis Rams were doing and certainly not a player on the team. And so I knew I needed buddies around the league and I started making cold calls. We're going to raise money for clean water. We're going to do large solar powered wells. And of course, nobody picked up the first couple calls. That's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Was, did Kilimanjaro become kind of the, the lure, like getting people to go and, and do this thing? Or, I mean, the, the high supposed to be great, right? We haven't been. We'd love to go. You guys would love it, man. I, You do need a hook. I do think you need a hook because, as you guys know, a picture's worth a thousand words. When you go over there, it just hits you different. Like, we had dudes who were special forces, and we had, you know, like, all types of badass men and women come over there. And, you know, because if you haven't heard, like, we do Conquering Kelly, which is athletes and uh, military a lot of amputees, you know, we had a blind dude summit. We had like just amazing people that are just overcoming incredible challenges, incredible challenges. Kirstie Ennis, first above the knee uh, amputee female to summit Killy. Did it with us, man. Like I've won two Super Bowls, shed a tear after one or two. So I'm batting 500 on crying after Super Bowls. I cry every time like a baby, you know, like when we get up there. And it's because of, you know, Elliot Ruiz or Kirstie Ennis or, so these men and women are just amazing and they, they kind of, it ends up being a camaraderie thing, but they lead the players, you know, and, and I think it's so cool to bring my friends and then see them be let. And so the vets are getting some out of it. We're getting some out of it. And everybody's just missing that opportunity for service, right? Because a lot of the guys and girls that get out, they want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. That's what they miss, you know, and we're kind of feeling the same way. I'm not comparing the two vocations, but we both- I will. I yeah. will. I think it's very similar. I mean, it's like you you go from this environment and then there's just this void. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you can always say, oh, 
it's so much harder in the military or, or whatever, right? I mean, war and all these things. And the, all of that is partially true. But, you know, I'm just flesh and blood like you are, right? It's also and, not as public. You know, you we were talking earlier about just being in that limelight and, you know, getting everything scrutinized. And that's not really the case in the military. Obviously, you know, there are, it's a different struggle. But yeah, it's almost harder in some ways because you are looked at so closely and expected to be this role model too. So. Yeah. And I always say this, like, listen, when it comes to that, you guys make a mistake, your friend dies, you know, yeah. we make a mistake, we get gashed for 40 yards. So like, I totally, Hey, listen, the reason we do conquer and Kelly is because we've identified there is a commonality in the social aspect of walking away from the military or walking away from an NFL locker room man, you miss. And this is what's so funny is we get in these tents, 10,000, 15,000, 17,000 feet up the mountain. We all feel like shit. We could be back in our tents, but you've got six football players and six, you know, a couple Marines and like, you know, just everybody's playing cards and, and it's 10 at night. And like, we're all tired. We're drinking crappy soup. Like we just want to be around each other. Cause that's the same thing. Like when we were in a locker room arguing about basketball or whatever, and you guys were in a tent somewhere halfway around the world or on the side of a mountain, like we just miss having people that, you know, you have something in common with because they're committed people that are doing something bigger than themselves. And so I think, and when we come together and do this, the results are amazing, man. And we have group texts that still fire. I mean, firing yesterday, people giving each other shit. The best kind of group text. <laughs> giving, giving shit is like, I think this is the first thing they probably teach you in the military and the NFL. So they teach you how to take it in the military. <laughs> so every year we do a reunion at my farm. Like, so it's been an amazing thing. But long story short, you get these men and women over there. And yeah, the football player is going to be blown away by what they're seeing. They've never seen anything like it. But when I know that Elliot Ruiz, who's been all over the world, and seeing Afghanistan or Iraq, or, you know, you've got somebody that's been in Somalia, Nate Boyer, who I started this with, uh, conquering Kelly, who's Green Beret, and just an awesome dude. He's been all over Africa. He's seen poverty. I, I, I'll never forget when Elliot Ruiz, outside of a, a school that we were providing water for, walked down this ravine with the kids to get water where they get it in the stream. And the school was right outside of Arusha, so it's 10 minutes outside. There's a creek at the bottom and it runs through an urban area to get there. And there's gasoline film all over the creek. There's trash in the creek. There's like, it's bad. And these kids scoop their water every morning and just grab the water. Gasoline film, move the trash out of the way. God knows what's in there. They run back up the hill. Teachers know they're down there getting their water here. There's just no other choice. And so watching Elliot Ruiz see that for the first time, or watching Justin Wren, an MMA fighter who's lived in the Congo for a year with the Pygmy tribe, tear up, you know, like, because they're seeing this. Every year I've been there, maybe I, my reaction is less visceral on the level because I've seen it. It's like you've, you're hardened a bit. But seeing those people see it for the first time is like it reinforces, like, this is a really – important thing to do and it's also rewarding for the people that are going because they, they come back and they're not they say they're never the same you know what i mean it's just one of those things i got the sense that once you gather just a little bit of steam you realize other people they want to to serve others they it's just it's hard like who's calling to ask people who's where's our jfk moment anymore you know and and so not that we need to look to, to Washington necessarily. I wouldn't. <laughs> it's usually a pretty bad, bad decision to sit around and wait for that. But 
what we need are servant leaders who stand up and say, hey, come do this with me. Come join us. We're, we're part of something bigger than ourselves and we're doing something really cool. And that's that sounds like what this is. Well, it is. And it's hopefully it's one it's born in like, I can't do this alone because I, I, I'm uncomfortable standing alone doing this. Uh, and I also I just need people, you know, I need you know, you need people who are like minded. They push you. They cover your blind spots. Like when you when you do things as a team, you know, whether it's in business or whether it's in your social life, your home life, like you just people call you on your bullshit. They tell you what needs to improve. They you're energized by their presence and like their stories. And I just think like that's why Killy is such a a cool thing, because not only do we get people on the mountain and it reinforces what we're doing it for and it gives a purpose. And also like for people back home, that mountain is a lot of good multimedia. People get excited to see players go and do something extraordinary. Veterans go and do something extraordinary. The, the, the story is authentically captivating. We don't have to like try hard to make it something that's incredibly interesting to people and compelling. I mean, like Hemingway kind of helped you out on that one. But it's it's true, though, man, like it's um, if you do something as a team and these guys and girls come back and like everything I just spoke to, like all of a sudden you multiply your your force, man. Like and I have guys and girls and I will say this, like the military folks and this isn't me blowing smoke up y'all's asses. And, you know, this like they're the best go getters. So where I've sat around and sometimes been like with certain people I've been involved with in the nonprofit space, I've been like get your ass moving. Like, let's go be proactive. What are we doing? There's never a, what are we doing <laughs> with, you know, like Carrie rock who lives here in Charlottesville, uh, who went on one of the trips and, and got home and started calling military buddies and having, you know, just call me and be like, I'm doing a fundraiser this weekend at the brewery for water boys. I'm like, I didn't have to do anything. That to me is I'm not just like using we're, we're all being used by the cause. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I feel really good about, multiplying that force because it's very authentic. I never had to tell Carrie once to do that. I never had to tell Kirsty to raise money or think of us and post or tell a military friend they love, you know, the Killy hike or it's just like all of a sudden you have an excuse the pun, but like an army of people behind you. And it's just because like you hung out and everybody hung out and we all just have this bond now. The reason that we got in touch with you was a member of our community who did a team assessment last year, one of our events where it's 48 hours, two guys together. It's, it's, it's pretty grueling physically. And, you know, he told me that the when they had to carry the buckets, that he ended up kind of making the connection with the, you know, the water boys. And he showed the film to his kids and just decided on his own that he wanted to help fundraise within our community. So he reached out to me earlier this month and said, Hey, I want to, I want to do this thing. Can I, can I do it? And I said, yeah, fine. D yeah. Create a patch, do get, get people involved with this. And then, you know, somehow he got us connected with you. And it's so, it's just, like you're saying, it's force multiplying through. Shout out to him. Yeah. Mark Gunther. Yeah. Yeah. Right Mark. Up. All right. Shout out. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> it's just like that. And that's the thing. And people always ask, what can we do for water boys? I'm like, tell a friend, like, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's the most important thing. Cause you just don't know your word of mouth could be the next domino. It's like somebody, some big wig. that's like, I'm going to give you guys a million dollars or something. You know, we have scratched and clawed for every dollar we've raised. We're grassroots. 
we just did this out in thin air. I mean, I had my platform, which was when I started this, my platform wasn't like, you know, it was cool, but we, a lot of it has been the word of mouth that you're describing. So shout out to anybody who's listening. Who's like, how can I help you tell somebody that's going to help us a lot. So what's next? Um, just continue. Like, listen, retirement's hard, man. It's hard for, it's hard mentally. It's hard. Even if you're ready, it's a big challenge. And I'm doing, I'm doing good with it. Some days it kicks your ass a little bit, you know, like you ride a wave, but What's the worst yeah, part? Yeah, we retired at 36. Sounds funny, too. Well, no, I was, I, I got, yeah, I'm retired at 36, but I've been out like two years about. And so I think the biggest thing is kind of walking away on your own power gave me a little like, I'm, no, I'm not bitter about how I left. I mean, you're always a little bitter. Like you wear things from your career, re- regrets, all that stuff. But, and I think that's one of the biggest things guys have to handle when they get out like that bitterness, like it's over, dude. Like nobody cares. It's it, and not in a bad way, like, but nobody cares. I'm still trying to tell myself like, nobody cares, dude. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and that can be tough. Cause I'm in, I'm doing a podcast now. You guys appreciate you listening to it every now and again, but like, it's hard when you're still connected to the game. If I was just podcasting about no football, it'd be a lot easier for me, but because I have to talk about the game, you know, you're kind of one foot in one foot out and that can be awkward. But I would just say continue to work on myself and like figure my life out, man. You know, I I think you're always figuring your life out. Continue to grind at the foundation thing. That's hard, too, because when you retire again, like what you just told yourself, nobody cares. Like, that's true. (laughs) So, you know, you have to find ways to like humbly pass the buck. And, you know, we've tried to like, listen. Miles Garrett screwed up last year. He he made a bad mistake. He got mad and he, it was an ugly moment. And he we had just selected him to be the Waterboys captain. So I was passing the buck to him because he is really this introspective, good kid who's done mission work. He cares a great deal about water. I saw like this blank canvas, like in this superstar. I'm like, we could get him to, he can be the active captain. The minute we did that, he hit uh, Mason Rudolph in the head with a helmet. So this was like my first like welcome to retirement. Okay. And you're now really running a foundation, not just like you running it. Like now you have to manage people and situations. And so, you know, nothing that I'm saying here, I wouldn't say to Miles, like we talked and I was like, you really fucked up, man. But how am I going to make the world a better place if I, if I cut you off and don't give you an opportunity to redeem yourself? So I think part of it is continuing to support the guys that we have enlisted to carry the torch. It's me behind the scenes, leveraging their platforms and like growing creative ways that we can do more. We're doing domestic work now, which we're doing hometown H2O. So we might be putting in a well near you down in Jacksonville sometime soon, like because rural America needs a lot. We talk about Flint. Everybody's like, what are you doing for Flint? Flint's a giant bureaucratic issue that we're not scaled to solve. And we've tried to help before, but I think a lot of things that's frustrating is most people say, what about Flint? They can't get down with the concept of us helping somebody who's way over there as if they're not human or they're not like our brothers and sisters. Like, And they also don't understand the scale of the problems in the Flint. So what we've done is we're like, where can we help? Mm-hmm. We can help domestically and we can help in rural areas, smaller projects, um, not a city of over 100,000 people. We can't slap a solar powered well down there. It's not how it works. We're working on Navajo Nation because, you know, like right now in COVID with everything that happened over the last year, they've been hit the hardest, almost the hardest because they barely have any clean water. You talk about access to clean water. If you're an indigenous person in this country, and this is not a BS stat, 17 times more chance of you having issues with clean water and access to it. 
and two and a half times if you're a person of color. So we've tried to even handed distribute help. You know, there's poor white folks in rural America who need the help. Like this isn't a thing where we're just checking a box. Like we want to help everybody, man. And so it just might take a minute. And, you know, like we're just getting there. And so we're doing that. We started Water for Her, which is obviously I mentioned the first anecdote I told you about clean water was, you know, it's female centric. This is a female issue. Women and girls bear the burden. That anecdote I told you was repeated thousands upon thousands of times around the world, not just in that region. And it's dangerous. And when girls are not in communities and not in schools and living normal lives, communities suffer. And there's statistics to back that out, back that up. So water for her, my wife, Meg, a bunch of awesome athletes and entertainers that she's enlisted, including like Julie Ertz and Mina Kimes and all over the map to domestic work. And we'll just keep plugging away, man. Yeah, that stuff takes time. And this sounds like a man in the arena problem to me. It's like, you know, you're in there doing the work. People outside, are, if they're going to criticize, you got to let them do it because, you know, they're, they're spending their time in other ways. I like I liked what you're doing. Well, you get used to that part, don't you, as you get older? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just noise. But yeah, you're doing the real work with this team. And, and I think um, it's really inspiring. And, you know, we were really excited to hear about it through, through well, thank you guys yeah and shout out to nicole and kim they're on my they run the foundation you talk about doing the real work those guys do a lot of the real work because i'm busy podcasting too a lot like you guys you know we're we're in the same league man us <laughs> the podcasting the podcasting league yeah <laughs> it's really elite one. how many how many a week do you guys do well, in the pandemic, we were doing a lot. Right? Yeah. I got I got this thing where, like you, I got to be doing a million different things. <laughs> it was like, plus, we wanted to put out good content that would kind of calm people. So we would bring in significant leaders or we brought in, you know, ER doctors and, and these kinds of things. Just, you know, people just got to stay calmer. Right. Like you, there's so much bad stuff out there. And there's so many good people doing so much good stuff. It's it's what you brought up with the NFL problem, right? I mean, they're always going to cover the bad more and mm-hmm. fear sells more and all that stuff. And so this is a bit of a counterculture to that or, or an anecdote for, for some of the listeners. Well, there's enough, there's enough well-founded negativity. You can find it anywhere. And there's also some negativity you're like, okay, I think it's just fine. And people are almost scared to put out positive content now. Like, don't worry. There's plenty of negative. You can go look at the negative somewhere else. Like I've had to, as a podcaster, be like, yeah, there are things I want to talk about that are irking me or something, but maybe I don't want to be so heavy today. You know, like maybe, especially last year, to your point, we did like four or five a week at one point. Wow. And I think it was because of what you described. It's like, one, I don't know what to do with myself, but also I want to help. Yeah. It was a weird year, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Super weird. And, you know, we have like you kids running around and dealing with all that. And, you know, it's, it's fun. It's a rewarding life though. And I think the the spirit of trying to give back in some way, you do what you can when you can with what you have. So last question for you is what's your sort of advice to to the next generation, right? Next generation of kids growing up in America or football players or or take your pick. Man. um, I think it's way more important. Football players are going to figure it out. (laughs) I, uh, I think it's way more important for, you know, kids. I think if we could just a lot more, we'd just be more thoughtful. I really think that's that's a lot of it is we could be more thoughtful and have conversations with people, you know, that, that aren't living like you, that don't look like you, that might think differently than you. And and I know it's been a tough, you know, five years to 
to have those conversations. But I really think like just thinking about other people's perspectives, like leading with a little more love. We live in such a world where everybody's trying to prove that they're tougher or that they're, you know, that they're right or that they're, and it's a little exhausting, man. And I've been sucked into it at times and, you know, in times where I meant what I was talking about, but it's still, it can be an ugly climate. And so I think like people thinking about other people's perspectives and also um, just leading with a little bit more love sounds simple, but you don't have to be so fucking tough all the time. Everybody doesn't have to be so tough all the time. Like we know who's tough and who's not tough. And we know like, you don't have to prove that you're the biggest, baddest, rightest person. And I think we're headed there like perpetually 24 hours a day, take a break, you know, like you can solve problems uh, and still be loving and, and thoughtful. That's awesome. I totally agree. Yeah, that's really good. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on. We, we appreciate the time and, uh, and your perspective. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you guys giving us a chance to talk about Waterboys. All right, so Chris Long has left the champagne room. Yes, he liked the champagne room. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what, what, what did uh, you think about Waterboys and his story? Oh, it's what a humble guy, you know? Like, just, you can tell... You would have you would have liked to, him to be in your class or like you know you know growing up with him. He seems he seems really cool. Um, I'm sure his wife is too. You know to to have gone through and and all those things. And it's really interesting to hear his perspective as a player and what's that like. I mean, he said it's a million shitty moments for you know a couple seconds of awesome. I did it. <laughs> it's just like the army like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, there, I think there's a ton, tons of parallels and, you know, you and you and I have met Nate Boyer, you know, cross paths and it's, it's really cool to hear that he's working with, with Chris on this, but it's really interesting when you, you see someone who's dedicated their life to playing a sport at a really high level and, and all the sacrifices that that entails and all the, um, you know, struggles and, you know, all the shitty moments that are just for the, you know, a few, a few awesome ones, which, you know, he's got two Super Bowl rings. So he's, he's had a lot of success relatively, but it, it came with a lot of work, but to see that translate into this whole new sort of project and, you know, you know, he's putting in that same level of intention and work and, and what do you, team building, you know, looking at the strengths of what his family gave him and and then looking at you know what sort of these like you know god-given gifts of being part of an elite group and, and using that for good i mean isn't that the goal yeah he didn't really want to describe it like this or he didn't but i mean he's in essence mentoring others in, in terms of go see this other way that people live on this planet go see it right for yourself and when you wrap it into something that's physical and something that Hemingway wrote a book about, right? <laughs> it's, it's like, you well, know, it's, it's the, just it's the, it's the rule of three, right? Like you've got, you know, you've got this NFL, this, you know, elite, you know, um, group of football players, and then you've got the military and, and, and involved, then you've got this awesome place. Yeah. And, and, and then it's like, and it's all for this awesome cause, you know, it's all for this very awesome cause. And I, I think, I'm not surprised to hear that, you know, there's people saying, well, why aren't you doing more? It's always like that. It's never going to end, you know, when you start to do something good and it can feel a little, you know, uh, it, it can be hard to feel like, gosh, I'm, I'm trying hard. We're doing this good work and why is it not ever enough? But that's life. <laughs> you know, it's always, it's always going to be more people in need 
It's never, it's never going to be over. It's, it's, he's just beginning this journey. Even better. Well, it's better to, to be in that position than to, for the world to expect nothing of you. Right. Yeah. So you keep, you keep pushing and you keep giving back and you keep figuring out a way. No one cares is worse, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, we didn't get too much in the, the transition side of it, but you, you can sense, I mean, it's hard. It's hard for everyone. I've talked to other football players. I've talked to obviously a lot of, a lot of veterans. It, it's hard. And so the lesson there is when you find some way to give back to others and you can build around that, you don't have to start your own foundation. You don't have to do these big, big, enormous things. There's lots of different ways to, to do that. Mark, Mark Gunther, the member of our community, you know, he was really inspired by it. And he said, I'm just going to do my thing locally. And, and he told me that he got 38 states and a couple, you know, other countries, people involved and, you know, tripled his, his fundraising goals. It's, it's fantastic. So it was, it was really pretty cool to, to chat with Chris. I mean, you know, professional athletes, you, you read a lot of negative stuff out there and none of them is perfect. Guess what? Nobody is. And, you know, he's, he's doing a lot of great stuff and giving back on, on that platform. And that that's worth celebrating unto itself. Yeah, absolutely. Any final thoughts, sweetie? I just that I, I'm, I think we need to go to Kilimanjaro at some point. And <laughs> I'd like to see this, you know, I've, I've, you know, also, as you know, spent time in Africa and seen a lot of this, the poverty, and it is hard to comprehend sometimes. Um, it is, we are in a lot of, you know, we are very fortunate here that we don't have a lot of these basic needs. While there are issues, like you mentioned, that that need, need a lot of work and we shouldn't, you know, divert complete, you know, interest to just, you know, one area. But at the same time, um, when, when it is a survival, uh, a question of survival, a basic needs not being met, it really makes you, it makes you consider your life, you know, and, and, and it makes you grateful for what you do have. And I think that's, that's an important exercise to, to continually go through in this life. Thanks for listening to Glorious Professionals. If you enjoyed this, tell a friend. We appreciate you guys. Thanks.